have a new painting behind me today. I want to thank Pastor Curtis for posing for that. <laughs> it was like seven hours he had to sit on a chair. I want to also encourage you to attend our baptism event in a couple weeks. I know that um, Pastor Curtis mentioned that, and I mentioned it last week, but would like to push that again. You are all welcome to be uh, a part of that. In fact, we hope that all of you will, will be there. It's not just you, but your, your friends, uh, co-workers, neighbors, whoever you'd like to invite. It'll be a great time for them to come out and just have, have fun with us. And It's one of these few times a year where we do get together as an entire church family and uh, and celebrate and have fun together and and we're coming together specifically to celebrate um through through baptisms these outward signs of inward grace that god has worked in hearts so i hope you can all be there i hope you can all be there if you are again interested in being baptized maybe now or maybe at the end of the sermon uh just tell one of us tell somebody before you leave and they'll make sure that we as the pastors know and then we'd like to get together with you in the next couple weeks. As well, if you haven't already, but you are planning to come, um, again, to uh, RSVP on the city. I know they've got some places where we, we need help serving. And it'd be great to have your help. And so let us know that you'd be, uh, you'd be willing to do that. We are, Lord willing, going to spend two weeks in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, sort of a part one and then a part two next week. Uh, each sermon will stand alone. So if you, if you miss one, that's okay. Uh, but Lord willing, we are going to spend two Sundays looking at Genesis chapter 12. Today, uh, this morning is going to be primarily observation. And then next week will be primarily application. Not just observation today, not just application next week, but mostly observation today, mostly application next week. As well, we're going to look at three texts today. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, which you just had read to you. But if you want to begin looking ahead also to Galatians chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 11, which also speak of this passage. So Genesis 12, Galatians 3 and Hebrews chapter 11. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. So let's pray together. We'll get started. Our Father in heaven, you have been good to us. You have been gracious to us. And you have demonstrated your, your loving kindness and your steadfast love and your tender mercies to us. And you've done this against a, a backdrop of this world that generally is, is not good and is not kind and is not merciful. And so your love toward us, it stands out. It's a stark reality. So those of us here today who call you Lord and who've come to know you and to know you as the greatest treasure in our life, we acknowledge before you that we have no other treasure besides you. That everything else that is, that is good in our lives, that is really good, it is not good compared to you because you are so good. Who have we in heaven but you, Lord? And compared to you, God, there is nothing on this earth that we desire. But God, thank you for giving us so many blessings on this earth. Thank you for pouring out your love and pouring out your grace. You've given many of us health and 
friendship and family and church. You've blessed us in so many ways, God. Well, thank you. We ask that today as we read about and think about Abraham, God, that you would use the testimony of his life to be an encouragement to us, to be a challenge to us, that we would see what there is in Abraham to to imitate, to model our lives after. And that we would see that behind this great man is a great God. And that without you, this great man is not great. So guide our time, as you always seem to do. We love you. Thankful to be together before you. We pray this in the great, greatest name above all names. The name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we are actually introduced to Abraham at the end of chapter 11. So let me read those verses first. Verses 27 through 32 of Genesis chapter 11. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Ishkah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So we learn a few things about Abraham, about his family, about his life. We learn that Abram is from Ur, which in today's geography is about 170 miles southeast of modern Baghdad. So that's where we're talking about. And this is where Abram and his family are from. There, we learn that Abram's brother, Haran, died. And then the, the family, the rest of the family, it appears, sets out on this journey, on this jury, journey to Canaan. But they stop, it tells us, and they settle in the city of Haran. And it's there where Abram's father, Terah, dies. So just introducing you to the journey of this family and some things that take place before the long journey to Canaan even begins. His brother dies, his dad dies, and then we're going to read that he sets out for the land that God is going to tell him to go to. And then there's one other, there's one other fact that the narrator wants us to know. It's interesting, it seems out of place, but it's going to be explained as we keep reading. And that's that the narrator wants us to know that Abram had a wife and her name was Sarai and she was barren. It may sound at first like a, a humiliating observation for for Moses to who's writing this for Moses to, to point out. Well, why are you why are you bringing that up? 
Why is that the only thing that you're saying about this woman? I mean, women today who are unable to conceive children go through a lot of pain because of that. Many of them do. Uh, but in this day, in this day, it was, it was probably a source of even more pain, culturally speaking, to not be able to have children. This was a, this was a big deal. It was a big deal that the 65-year-old woman, woman had, had no child, had no child. But Moses is up to something. So he wants us to know that before we even get into this account of what happens with, of what happens with, with Abram. I said this last week, I'll say it again. We've got a break in the book of Genesis. There are two sections, and we are now beginning the second section. So chapters 1 through 11 cover at least 19 generations. And chapters 12 through 50 cover four generations. We've kind of sped through. The author is speeding through those first 19 generations, at least 19 generations. But now he really takes his time in chapters 12 through 50 and focuses on four generations, looking at Abraham, his son Isaac, his son Jacob, and his son Joseph. And they are of primary concern to the author. And of chapters 12 through 50, 14 of those chapters are devoted to the life of Abraham. Fourteen. So in our study of Genesis as a church, we've only gotten through 11 chapters. Now we have 14 more chapters that are just looking at the life of Abraham. James Boyce thinks that Abraham is the most important character in your Bible other than Jesus Christ. He would say that Abraham is the most important character in your Bible other than Jesus Christ. Three times in the Bible, Abraham is called God's friend. Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation through his son Isaac. Abram is the father of many Arab tribes through his son Ishmael, who traced their lineage back to Abraham. And Abraham is the father of faith to all Christians ever. So many people Many nations and many religions even look back to Abram. He's that significant. And he has entire chapters devoted to him in the book of Romans, in the book of Galatians, and in the book of Hebrews. So Abram, who we're going to be spending some time looking at over the next several months, is is a very important character in your Bible. Now here's something important to to affirm that Abraham is great. That's what we're saying. Three times called God's friend. Entire chapters devoted to him in the New Testament. Abraham is great. But there's really no such thing as human greatness. And we need to affirm that. Abram, he is a great man. But... There is really no such thing as human greatness. There are men and women who are under great grace. So in your Bible, in your past, today and in the future, okay, there will be people that we will look to and we will say they are great. 
But there's really no such thing as human greatness. When we say someone is great, the biblical way to look at that is to say, well, no, 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 no one is great. There are no great people. There are no great models. There are no great examples. There are not people with great influence. No, of course there are great people. But biblically speaking, when we say someone is great, including Abram, what we are saying and affirming is that there are men and women who are under great grace. And in that sense, history is full of men and women of greatness, but it is a derived greatness. Some of you may be great. I hope some of you will be great. But any greatness that you have will be a derived greatness. It will it will have a source that is not you. It will come from someone that is not you. It will not be an intrinsic greatness. It is a derived greatness. And so people like Abraham have done great things because God has chosen to be great through him. And there are great people today and God is great through them. Because there is no such thing as human greatness. So we read about other characters in your Bible in in addition to Abram, right? Moses became an amazing leader and the lawgiver. Joshua became a great military general. David became a great king. Paul became a great missionary. Now here is Abraham. And Abraham was was no lawgiver. Abraham was no king. Abraham was no uh, military general. Abraham was was not a, a missionary. But here's what was great about Abraham, the Bible says. Here's what was great about Abraham. He heard God's word. He believed God's word. He obeyed God's word. The Bible may may go so far as to say that number two in the list of human greatness under Jesus Christ is Abraham. The Bible may go so far as to say that. That in terms of who is great in your Bible and who you should model your life after and who you should look to. Other than Jesus, who is in a class of his own, Abraham was great. But why was he great? He heard God's word. He believed God's word. He obeyed God's word. Abraham, we are told, was a man of faith. And that is what faith does. Faith hears God's word, obeys God's word. If you are a person of faith, you are a person who does not merely hear God's word, but you hear God's word and you believe God's word and you live accordingly. You obey God's word. And we sorely need this in the church today. We don't need more people who have just natural off the chart ability. Your people like Moses and your people like Joshua and your people like David who just have these natural abilities that God then uses to do amazing things. And everybody looks at them and says they were a great person. We need more people who may not have these extraordinary abilities, but just have ordinary people with extraordinary faith. And this is what's great when you read the life of Abraham. 
Now, sometimes when you read the life of like a Moses or a Joshua or a David, you may think to yourself, well, I just, I'm, just, I'm not that person. I mean, just look at the courage of these men, and I, I look at the, the ability of these men, and, and I look at what they were able to do, and I look at the, the, the strategies their minds conceived, and I looked at, the, at their oratory skills and the way they were able to call people. to the, I, mean, I, just, I, just, I don't have those kinds of natural uh, abilities. Sometimes I don't even know what my abilities are. You may feel like that. And you see here in Abraham... A man who is declared as great simply because he heard God's word. He believed God's word and he obeyed God's word. Friends, this is the greatness that we need. We need more James one twenty two Christians. James says, be doers of the word. Do not merely merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. But what does James say? Do what it says. Pointing us to people like Abraham. And James is doing that in his whole New Testament letter. He's saying, do something. And we need to hear that. You sing these songs. You affirm this doctrine. You subscribe to this doctrinal statement. You believe these truths. If you believe these truths, and if you know this God, then be doers of the word. Obey God's word. Do what it says. Be like Abraham, who heard God's word, who believed God's word, and who obeyed God's word. This is who Abraham was, and this is who we want to pattern our life after. Regardless of your natural abilities, you have Christian by the Holy Spirit been given the spiritual ability to be like Abraham in these regards. To be men and women who hear his word, who believe his word, and who obey his word. Now let's get into chapter 12, verse 1. And as I said, this sermon is mostly observation. Next week is mostly application. So I won't connect a lot of the dots this morning. In other words, Bible says this, so do this. So apply it this way. But that doesn't mean that there's no application today. So my encouragement for you is as we're going through and as we're making these observations... And we're watching the life of Abram. Consider, as you see him working out his faith, consider the implications of that on your life. And consider how you would apply that to your life. One of the reasons I won't draw out a lot of application today is because I think that the Holy Spirit will apply this word to your hearts in very clear ways just by observing what Abram did. Verse 1, chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. God speaks to Abram and tells him to go. And he basically tells Abram to to abandon all these sources of security 
that he has. Your family, your extended family, your your friends, your your community, your country, your work. Hey, he tells he tells Abram to abandon all of this. What's going to happen if Abram does that is that his human support will largely be removed. He's going to go. God is telling him to go and establish his life somewhere else. If he does that, he is going to to leave all forms of human support that he has. So for Abram to obey God right now would be to trust God implicitly. For him to obey God's call right here because of what he's giving up would mean that he would be trusting God implicitly, without question, absolutely. That is what's needed if Abram is going to to obey God. But here's what we're going to see now. God calls Abram to obey. And God calls Abram to, to leave much of what this world has to offer. And he calls him to leave many sources of support. But God, as we're going to see now in these verses, he doesn't send Abram out, though, with nothing. He doesn't send him out with nothing. But what God sends him with are promises. This is what God does with us. This is what God does with us. Uh, he, he calls us to, to, to do things often that are not reasonable. He calls us to do things often that, that do not make sense. And there are many times in our lives where to obey God is not going to make a lot of sense. And to obey God is going to get us laughed at and mocked. And, and to obey God may even have physical and temporal consequences. But we do these unreasonable things because we're obeying a God that is far beyond our reason. And so we're trusting him implicitly and acknowledging that you are God and your ways are higher than my ways. And I see dimly. And so I'm going to trust you no matter what. Absolutely. But when God does that. Well, he doesn't usually give us reasons and he doesn't give Abraham reasons. He gives us promises. And this is what we take. And this is what we hold on to. They're promises. Verses two and three. What does God say to Abram? And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Over and over again, what is the phrase that you see? I will, I will, I will. I will seven times if we also look at verse seven, which we're going to seven times. If we break it down, seven promises that God makes to Abram promises that he's going to reaffirm later in Genesis to Abram's children, Isaac, he's going to reaffirm these promises, Jacob, he's going to reaffirm these promises. So what is God doing so far? So God comes to Abram and says, I'm, I'm I want you to. Hear my word and believe me and obey me. And I'm going to ask you to do something that is build an ark in a desert ridiculous. 
Okay, I'm going to ask you to, to do something. I'm going to command you to do something that is not going to seem reasonable. And it will not seem like this is wisdom. And it will not look like things are going to go well for you. But you just need to trust me. It's going to go well for you. So better for you to be a fool in, in man's eyes and be wise in, in my eyes. So just trust me. And, and here we go. And so God gives him this command and says, so get up, get your family together and go. Load up the U-Haul. You're moving. I mean, we're going to start a new life somewhere else. But God doesn't just stop there. God then looks at Abraham and he says, but listen, here's what I am going to do. And so God says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, and I will. Seven times. He tells Abram about what God is going to do. Which is really foreign in a culture where it's all about me and what I did and about what I'm doing and about what I will do. This is what I have done. And we have you know, ways of bringing it up to remind people. We have pieces of paper and frames that we put on walls. Just so you remember what I did. And it comes up in conversations. Things that I did. Things that I'm doing. This is what I am doing. This is where I am being successful. And we have ways that we talk about those things where it kind of sounds like we're not bragging. Because we're good at that. We somehow turn boasting into like a prayer request. We are shrewd. We are wickedly wise. We have ways of just kind of affirming what we've done. Post it on Facebook. Something that I did, but I don't. I don't want you to take this the wrong way. Millions of people and think that I'm somehow good, but I, I do want you to know I did it. <laughs> I want you to know what a great husband I am, what a great father I am. And then we talk about things that we're going to do, and we make all these plans and and all of these the things that we just they might as well have happened the way we talk about them. And James, you know, the Bible says things like, be careful what you say. I mean, don't even say you're going to this town without saying, if the Lord wills it, we will do this. So everything is hinging on God. And so the past, if there's anything good, it's because of God. And if the present, if there's anything good, it's because of God. And if you're going to do anything good in the future, it's because of God. Because any greatness in you and any greatness in me is a derived greatness. It comes from God. So, so God here, Abraham, we know he's going to do a lot of great things. And great things are going to happen in his life. Now, lest that go to his head, God tells him beforehand, I will do these things. So when they happen, you've got nothing to brag or boast about, Abraham, because you remember, I told you that these things were going to happen. And what I didn't tell you in Ur was, hey, Abraham, you're going to do this, and you're going to do this, and you're going to do this. I said, I will do these things. So it's God's greatness. Let's, th- let's look through. Let's see what they are. There, there's seven of them. There's seven of them. Verse 1. Well, let me read the 
We read it. Verse 1, I will show you a, a land. All right, second half of verse 1 there. God tells Abram, I will show you a land. God's going to do that. Verse 2, I will make of you a great nation. Also in verse 2, I will bless you. Also in verse 2, I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. The first half of that is significant because do you remember what the Babylonians were trying to do in chapter 11, verse 4? Let us make a name for ourselves. Let us exercise human greatness. Were they successful? They were not. And God tells Abraham, I will make your name great. It will be a derived greatness. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. Also in verse 3, I will curse him who dishonors you. And then if we skip down to verse 7, it says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So the seventh promise God makes is, I will give your offspring this land. So seven things that God tells Abram he's going to do. I will show you a land. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who dishonors you. And I will give your offspring this land. So basically God says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. And from you is going to come children. And from you is going to come so many children. A nation is going to come from you. A blessing is going to flow from you onto every other family on the face of the planet. And, and I'm going to give you land. This land that I'm going to show to you. And then he's going to repeat these promises to Abram over and over again in the next 14 chapters. And then God's going to repeat them to Abram's children. So God says, Abraham, I am going to do great things in you and great things through you. But here's why those verses at the end of chapter 11 were important. And here's why the author wanted you to have those things in mind. But Abraham has no children. He's got no kids. And God says, I'm going to bless everyone through your children. If God was saying that to Mr. Duggar, that would be one thing, right? 18 and counting or 50 and counting, whatever it is. But God says that to Abram, whose name means, you know, father of many. And how many children does he have? He has zero children. What kind of sense does this make from God? It makes zero, zero sense. He has no offspring. Abraham has no land. <laughs> He's just a man on a journey. He has no kids. He has no land. We also learn, this is important, we also learn from Joshua chapter 24 that his daddy worshipped pagan gods. There isn't a holy heritage that Abram is coming from. There's no godly mom and dad. There's no godly grandmother and godly grandfather. 
He has none of that in his history. He comes from a bunch of pagan worshipers. So here Abram is, and, and it, would be, it would be not a stretch to conclude that Abram himself, before he was called by God, was a worshiper of pagan gods. His father was. His brothers were. Abram probably was too. So here you have God making all these promises of what he is going to do in, in how he is going to make this man a great godly nation. And who is God saying this to? He is saying this to a pagan who worships false gods and has no land and no children. His wife is barren and she is 65 years old. I don't know about you, but when we have been in the hospital and my wife's been having children, there are not a lot of 65-year-old women in labor and delivery. They're not there. Maybe they're as, as grandmothers visiting children, but they're not getting ready to have children. It'd be one thing if, if Sarai was without child and she was 30 years old, 35 years old. But he's saying this to a husband. He's 75 years old. And his wife is 65 years old. And God says, I will do these things through you. That is an unlikely thing to happen. So, we should be asking ourselves as we're reading through the text, how is Abraham going to respond? I know how I'd respond. Let's see how he responds. Verse 4 first. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So quite simply, how does Abram respond? He obeys God. Remember, this is going to be a man who is lifted up in Scripture as one who hears God's word, believes God's word, and obeys God's word. You see how simple the transition is there in verse 4? So, Abram went. No questions, no arguments, no excuses. Okay, here's where you're going to see what's great about Abram and is consistently going to be great about Abram. So, Abram went as the Lord had told him. So he believed God. He had no reason to believe God. Mom and dad didn't train him to believe God. Doesn't have all these experiences of God being faithful to him. None of that. Brand new baby Christian, if you will. And he hears God's word and he believes God's word and he alters his life accordingly. And we mean alters his life. Again, look at what he is giving up. This is why Hebrews 11 verse 8 says this by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going no Tom Tom no GPS no iPhone no Android has no clue you will arrive in your destination and approximately he doesn't know and yet, verse 4, so Abram went. Now here's something we need to point out that we'll need to point out throughout our study of Abram. And it's at the very end of verse 4 
And it answers the question here of when Abram set out, and it says that he departed from Haran. So he's setting out for his journey to obey God from this city of Haran. And we know from those verses at the end of chapter 11 that his brother has already died and his father has died. And it seems to be the death of his father here that then prompts him to leave. And here's why that is concerning to some. Some look at this as a failure on Abram's part, that there's actually a little sin here on Abram's part. Because while we learn here that he left from Haran after his brother died and after his father died, Stephen makes a speech in Acts chapter 7 that says that God called him to obey while he was still in Ur. And so the conclusion that many have brought, and we're not going to draw a conclusion either way, I'll leave that up to you, but the conclusion that many have drawn is that he was sluggish in his obedience. He didn't actually go right away. And God had to take his brother. God had to take his father. And then finally, when he had nothing left to really cling to, then he didn't settle there in Haran, but went ahead and, and obeyed God. But we would just say this. That may be a failure on Abram's part, but not necessarily. And so it's important to note this because there's going to be other there's going to be other times in our story of Abram where where it's going to it may look at first like he is failing. We're going to see a couple more today And, and an assumption may be made that he's sinning, but not necessarily. There is at least one inexcusable failure in Abram's life. And that we'll see is when he fathers a child, Ishmael, with his wife's maidservant, Hagar. That, that is inexcusable, and there is, there is no way around that. But what you need to see in Abram's life is that, is that as the, the author is describing these, there is, there is no moral evaluation. So the author is not, he's leaving that up to you and to me. Is this actually a, a failure? Or or was this just Abram was being obedient and he was moving, but, you know, there was death in the family and he was waiting for this to come to pass. And well, when you look at Hebrews chapter 11, there is no mention of Abram being sinful in his or, or guilty of delayed obedience. So we've got to draw those conclusions ourselves. Let's move on to verse five through nine now, which elaborates on on Abram's response. First, verse five. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Okay, so here he is now taking off on his journey. He takes with him Lot, who is his brother's son, and he may be taking Lot thinking that if something happens to me, uh, I need someone who's going to uh, who's going to take over and who's going to inherit. And I don't have a son yet. So that's probably why he's taking his nephew Lot with him. But it also has this strange statement that says that that they also took from Haran uh, all of these people that they had acquired. And there's a lot of speculation about what what this means. There's basically three possible. solutions. who are these people that they acquired uh, before they set out for uh, for Canaan. Who are these people that they acquired? And different translations will even use different words. It might just be family members. 
It might just be family members, other family members that they hooked up with or children that were born or whatever, but the family has grown while they're waiting for dad to pass away. So that, that's who these people are. Um, it, it may be that these are slaves or workers that they had hired and had purchased to go with them to help with their family. Or it, it could be another possible translation of this word acquired is, is made. Made. That these were people that they had made. The idea behind that would be that these are people that they had converted and had evangelized to. We do know, we are going to learn that Abraham was a proclaimer of God's word and God's truth. And later in chapter 23, all the locals call Abram a, a prince of God. And prince of God seems to communicate that he was very possibly responsible for the evangelization and, and thus the conversion of many people around him. So we don't know who exactly these people were, but there's more of them than when they started and they now set out for Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, verse 6, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So here God appears to Abram. We haven't seen God do this in a long time in, in Genesis. But God appears to Abram and he apparently appears to Abram to encourage him, to encourage him to keep moving forward. But look at what Abram does in in response. Did you see what did you see what Abram did? He passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Morah. The Canaanites were in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So, so then what does Abraham do? Then he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So I want us to see what, what Abram does here. Where does he do this? And, and when does he do this? Well, the first thing, what, what does Abram do? What does he build? He builds an altar. You remember what the first thing Noah did when he when he came off the the ark? Right? He built an altar. He worshiped God before he did anything else. He acknowledged God's greatness and God's goodness. So the first thing that Abram does when he gets into this new land, this new territory that God says he's going to give him is he builds an altar. He literally he builds a place of worship, builds a church. It would be the closest thing we have today. He builds a place where he and others can go together and worship God. This is the first thing that he does. Where does he build it? This is interesting. Where he builds it is at the place at Shechem. It doesn't say a, a place in Shechem. It says a place at Shechem. The place at Shechem. In other words, this, was, this is saying that that this is a popular place. This is a place that is known to people. Oh, it's not a town. It's not a city. This land is filled with Canaanites who do not worship God, but worship false gods. So most likely, most likely there was some sort of shrine that existed at the place at Shechem. And so this was a location. You see what Abram's doing. 
this was a, a site of false worship. This was a place where the Canaanites, who worshipped false gods, had set up as a place where they would gather to worship God. And so, But what does Abram do there? Well, he builds an altar. He builds an altar to worship God right next to the altar that is built by the foreigners to worship their God. And he's doing all of this. He's doing all of this in a land that does not belong to him, in a place that does not belong to him, a place where he is severely outmatched and outnumbered. And yet he sets up his house of worship right next to their house of worship. And the other thing to notice is when does he build it? Well, he builds this right after God tells him that he's going to give this land to his offspring. So the other thing Abram is doing is marking God's territory. He's marking God's territory. He does this right on the, here he is in this new land, and then God appears to him and says, this land, I know it's not yours right now, I know it's overrun with others, but this land will be Yours, this land will be your offsprings. This land, God is saying, is my land. So what does he do? He marks this territory for God. He claims this land for God. One of the coolest things you see is as Abram as Abram goes along this journey, what is the only thing he leaves behind? He, he leaves behind these relics of worship of God. Not relics of his own greatness or his own wealth. Everywhere he goes, he builds something that will be a monument of God's greatness. James Jordan put it this way. In seeking to lay claim to Canaan, Abram did not first engage in a military conquest. Rather, his first action was to establish the worship of the true God and worked to change the hearts and minds of the people living there. He knew that all cultural benefits flow from worship. He sought first the kingdom of God, trusting that all other things would be given to him later on. Does that sound like a New Testament passage? Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God, and then all these things shall be added unto you. So here God has told Abram, right? He remembers God says, I I will, I will show you a land. I will give you this land. And then Abram shows up and he's like, uh, there's people here. (laughs) Wouldn't your assumption be that God was going to take you to like a vacant property? (laughs) So you walk in the house and, oh, there's people living here. This is not going to work out. So does this cause him to uh, doubt? Uh, Does he start organizing a military to take this land by force? This is really important. It's really important when we think about how we want to see God and his goodness and his greatness and his words spread throughout the world. We are not crusaders who are doing this by the sword. And Abram doesn't do that either. What is the very first thing he does in this pagan nation? He says, as for me and my family... We will worship the one true God. And we're going to worship right here. 
and will tell you about this God and will teach you about this God and will invite you to obey this God. But in, in his plan to occupy this land, this is the very first thing that Abram does. We are here to worship God. Are Christians known primarily as worshipers of God? Are we known primarily by our affections for God? Our love for God, our devotion to God. Abram doesn't come into town and immediately start making commentary on everything that's wrong with this pagan nation. The very first thing he does and the very first thing that he establishes is that we will worship the one true God. And you speak to people just kind of following him. Here he is on this journey and everywhere he's like, oh, what is it? Another altar. Just following him. And what is left behind? Just these altars that are worshiping the one true God. Verse 8 and 9. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Aon on the east. And there, what did he do? He built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Why? Because he needs to worship God everywhere that he's going. He wants to honor God everywhere that he's going. So pay attention in verse 8 and 9. What did he pitch and what did he build? He pitched something and he built something. So there was something that he established that was temporary and there was something that he established that was permanent. He built a lasting altar to the Lord for worship. Even though he himself was dwelling in a tent. This is part of this semi-nomadic nature of these early patriarchs. Is that they understood that this was temporary. And they understood that, that God could, could move them at any time. And they understood that even the gifts that God had given them in this life were, were not, were not just their gifts. They were gifts that had been entrusted to them by God. And they had a temporal mindset when it came to these blessings. And so when it comes to his own home, it was temporary. When it came to a place to worship God, it says that he built an altar to the Lord. This is simply Abram recognizing the priorities in his life. What is permanent? What is temporary? How, how tightly am I going to hold on to this? And how loosely am I going to hold on to this? So his home, pretty loose. Worship of God, pretty tight. Hebrews 11, 9 and 10 says about what we're reading here. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Do we look forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God? It's a fine line, isn't it? Between enjoying the gifts of God in this life and ultimately treasuring the gifts of God in this life. It's a, it's a fine line between creating our heaven here on earth and enjoying this life, but looking forward to 
heaven in heaven. It's a fine line that can get blurred. But we see in Abram, he had these priorities. And he wasn't just living in a tent because it was convenient and he was an outdoorsy kind of guy. And, you know, his boys liked to camp. And that's not... He was he was living in these tents. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews tells us, because rather than establishing a city like the Babylonians did, okay, he was looking forward to his city being established after he died. And moving into God's city, where the foundation is God, and the designer is God, and the builder is God. So it's just telling us that the, the, the things in this life were were held in a loose hand. It doesn't mean, friends, you don't enjoy this life. It doesn't mean that you don't enjoy the gifts that God gives you in this life. It doesn't mean that you don't own a home. It doesn't mean that you don't stay at a job. It doesn't mean that you don't live in one place with your family and you don't and you have to bounce around like it. It doesn't mean those things. In fact, we would go so far as to say that it is a sin if you do not enjoy the gifts that God has given you. But we hold these gifts in a loose hand. And when enjoyment goes to treasuring, which I think that's that's Christ and God treasuring. When enjoyment gets to a point where my joy is contingent on these things. Then we've gone too far. We need to be able to be like Job. Right. Who was like Paul, who said, I, you know, I've learned what it's like to be in need, what it's like to live with a lot, what it's like to live with a lot, both difficult, both hard things to do. Remember what Job said, though? Job knew what it was like to be on the top and, and in the in the valley of vision. Job knew that. And he just he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Just matter of factly, well, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. He's given to me. He's taken away. Maybe he'll give again. I don't know. But what is constant? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord if you've got a lot. Blessed be the name of the Lord if you've got a little. Blessed be the name of the Lord if you've got more than you know what to do with. Blessed be the name of the Lord if you've got less than nothing. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is what you see Abram doing. Okay, He's holding these things in a loose hand. We should model our lives after this. Verse 10 through 20 now. And here's the question we just ask as we go through here. Is this wisdom or sin? Most of you have probably heard that Abram is about to do two stupid things right now. He's been made fun of by commentators for a couple thousand years, right? This is sin. This is foolishness when we read about what he's going to do here, but it's not necessarily. It is certainly possible that there are two failure, failures on, on Abram's part in the text that we're about to read, but it is also plausible that there is not. Per usual, the narrator gives no moral evaluation. All right, so we just, we just read it. Remember, Abram is not the focal point here. God is. So be careful that we don't get too caught up in, in Abram. But here's what happens. Uh, verses 10 through 13. This is Abram's plan. Okay, here's his plan. Now, there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the family was severe in the land. Okay, is that wisdom or sin? Some people have said, sin. What are you doing? 
God told you to go to Canaan, not to Egypt. Trust God to provide for you. Don't take matters into your own hands, right? You can make an argument. But maybe he's just being wise. Uh, there's no food here. Uh, there's food over there. Let's go get some food. It doesn't have to be much more complicated than that. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, this gets a little more sketchy. <laughs> I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So here's his conclusion. Okay, she is, she, Sarai apparently was a hot 65-year-old woman. <laughs> like, I mean, men would see her and flock to her, and the Pharaoh would want to bring her into his kingdom. And, and he's worried about that because if they know that the only thing standing between her and them is her husband, then Abram's saying, they're, they're going to off me. They will take me out. So that you're not in covenant with anyone and it's not going to go well for me. So how about we do this? And his solution is, let's just tell a little lie. This is, this is a tiny one. White lie. This is a white lie. White lies aren't bad, right? Just the big lies are bad. If you've got good intentions and something good comes from it, you can lie all you want. <laughs> right? The ends justifies the means, right? That's human logic, right? So here's what he does. I don't know if it's good or bad. Here's what he says. Uh, uh, so here's what he'd like her to do. Verse, verse 13. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. So it does. It sounds a little selfish. Sounds a little, you know, me, me, me. But he doesn't want to die. That's reasonable. So his solution is, let's tell a, a half-truth. You may not know that this is actually a half-truth because she was his half-sister. Same dad, different mom. Ew. Same dad, different mom. Not so, ooh, ew, back in Genesis. It's just you got to roll with it. It's just how things went back then. But she was. She was his, half, his half-sister. So technically, is that a lie? Well, it depends on how you define lying. It's not the whole truth. We'll tell him half the truth. We'll tell him the other half of the truth. You know, half whatever his logic is. But that's that's his that's his hope. That's his plan. So so perhaps Abram fleeing to Egypt is not trusting God to provide, and and perhaps lying about his wife is the result of Abram not trusting God to protect. Okay, but but I don't know. Abram is the man of faith. So Hebrews eleven talks about it. But he doesn't mention any. Sin on Abram's part when it, when it talks about this situation. I mean, Abram is the man of faith. So maybe he's not. Maybe he's not actually sinning right now. Maybe this is okay. Maybe just being wise and protecting his family and providing for his family. Because after all, he is the man of faith. But as we read on, it sort of seems like his plan backfires. So maybe this is sin. Let's read on. Verse 14. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram 
And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So far, so good. It's going well for Abram. And what happens? Verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. This is also a foreshadowing of the plagues that are going to come upon Pharaoh and Egypt for their national sin. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? We don't know how he figured this out, but he did. Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Where did he get all these things that he had? He, he got them while he was in, in Egypt. So by God's grace, by God's grace, things turn out pretty well for Abram and for his wife and for his family. Was it wisdom? Was it sin? I'll leave that up to you. One final observation. And we would need to look back at verse 3. One final observation. God told Abram, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And, and here's what we want to see, in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here we have a second prophecy in Genesis of the coming of Jesus Christ. How in the world will all families be blessed in one man? All families will be blessed in this one man, Abraham, if one of his offspring is Jesus Christ, the Savior of all men. The first prophecy, you remember, was in Genesis 3.15, right after the fall, and God comes to Adam and Eve, and He gives a prophecy of the coming of Jesus Christ by telling them that uh, um, the Messiah, a rescuer, will come, and He will crush Satan. And that's what the faithful have had to go on at this point about Jesus, that a rescuer, that one is coming who will crush Satan. Now here, this prophecy isn't so much about the conquering nature of the one who will come, but rather the blessing that will come from this one man. And so he tells Abram, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. According to Galatians 3, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3 is an early declaration of the gospel. Galatians 3, 6 and 9 through 9. Let me read it. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foresee Genesis 12 and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, 
So how was the gospel preached beforehand to Abraham? Saying, in you shall all nations be blessed. So Galatians 3 says that when God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, in you all nations will be blessed, that that was God preaching the gospel to Abraham. Even our brothers and sisters, the beginning of time as we know it, we're being pointed to Jesus Christ. God's people have been singing the same song forever. Look to Christ. What was it to Adam and Abel and Noah and Abram? Look forward to Christ. What is it to believers here in Veritas Church? Look back to the work of Christ. Look forward to the coming of Christ. The same song. We've been singing the same song. The gospel was preached to Abram. The gospel is preached to you and me. The good news that there would be blessing in this one. What kind of blessing? Galatians 3, 13 and 14 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. So in Him, in Abraham, everyone, all families will be blessed because in Christ, all everyone will be blessed. And what is that blessing? The blessing that can be had in Christ is removal of the curse of the law. And the curse of the law is death to lawbreakers. The curse that I am born under and the curse that you are born under is tied to your identity as a sinner. And I'm a lawbreaker by nature. You're a lawbreaker by nature. Breaking the laws of God. Disregarding the laws of God, running from the laws of God and God, who is just. God, who is just, says then his wrath and judgment is pending. On all those. Who break his law. So what does Christ do? He frees us from the curse of the law. The curse of the law. You are a lawbreaker. And you shall die for your sin. Christ frees us from that curse by becoming the curse for us. 
by dying in our place. And Abram was taught to look forward to this truth. And you and I are taught to look forward to this truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for this best of all news, the good news that your son, Jesus Christ, came into this world and lived like us in every way except He never sinned. That He then died a death He did not, unlike us, deserve. So that in Him, God, our sins were dealt with. Thank you for this good news. Thank you for raising your son from the dead as vindication, as proof that he is our king, that he is our savior, that he is our treasure. God, we ask that people would call out to you now. That there would be people now who hear your word, but now believe your word and now obey your word. That we would be these people who honor you in response to your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.